Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, November 26th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Vaccinated people now make up most U.S. COVID deaths. The U.S. claims that Turkish airstrikes in Syria directly threatened its troops. Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of the Congo agree to a ceasefire. The EU struggles with a Russian oil price cap amidst deadly Kherson strikes. Georgia reinstates a six-week abortion ban. A U.S. writer sues Trump for defamation and battery. Alaska's Murkowski and Peltola win re-election. Musk will reinstate suspended Twitter accounts. Malaysia's Anwar Ibrahim sworn in as prime minister after a year in jail. Pakistan's army chief admits military meddling in politics. Europe will fund a study on beaming solar energy from space. And our first story today is an analysis regarding vaccinated people that they now make up a majority of U.S. COVID deaths. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, Associated Press, and Town Hall. The majority of Americans dying from COVID are either vaccinated or boosted against the virus, according to an analysis of official figures conducted on behalf of the Washington Post. The analysis, carried out by Cynthia Cox, vice president at the Kaiser Family Foundation, showed that 58% of Americans who died of COVID in August had received at least one dose of a vaccine. The figure was up from 23% in September 2021, which rose to 42% in February 2022, before reaching the latest figure, which has seen the vaccinated make up the majority of COVID deaths. Quote, we can no longer say this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, Cox said. However, she warned that the figures are to be expected, as a large majority of Americans received at least one dose of a vaccine. Therefore, she points out those with the greatest risk of dying from the disease, such as the elderly, are more likely to have been vaccinated, resulting in this seemingly unusual finding. Cox added that vaccines lose their efficacy over time, so continued boosters are needed for the ongoing prevention of illness and death. On Tuesday, Dr. Anthony Fauci, in what will likely be his last White House press briefing before he retires, urged Americans to get boosted as soon as possible. He said, quote, This may be the final message I give you from this podium is that please, for your own safety, for that of your family, get your updated COVID-19 shot as soon as you are eligible. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. And during this podcast, we always extract the spins from the facts. And for this story, we have three spins that have emerged our first spin is the establishment critical narrative coming from Town Hall. The White House continues to claim that the virus could be stopped in its tracks if everyone were vaccinated and boosted. They have also vilified the unvaccinated, claiming they were a threat to their families and society. However, the figures simply don't support their claims. And Washington Post has provided us with a pro-establishment narrative. These figures are to be expected as a large majority of Americans have received at least one dose of a vaccine, and those with the greatest risk of dying from the disease, such as the elderly, are more likely to have been vaccinated. Vaccines are still nevertheless the most effective protection against COVID and strongly medically advised, 
And from time to time, we have a nerd narrative. And this one says there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 1.11 million confirmed COVID deaths in the U.S. by the end of 2022. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, Turkish airstrikes in Syria directly threatened U.S. troops. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Fox News, Al Jazeera, Washington Post, Politico, and Defense.gov. The U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, stated on Wednesday that a Turkish drone strike on a base in Syria on Tuesday put U.S. troops and personnel at risk. No U.S. service members were injured in the strike. No further information was provided, and Joint Chiefs Chair General Mark Kelly reportedly spoke with his Turkish counterpart, General Yassar Guler, about items of mutual strategic interest. Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Patrick Ryder expressed concern over escalating actions in the area in a statement on Wednesday, calling for immediate de-escalation to, quote, maintain focus on the defeat ISIS mission. At the same time, Ryder acknowledged Turkey's legitimate security concerns. There are currently some 900 U.S. troops on the ground in Syria. U.S. forces were reportedly 300 yards away from the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, base in Hasaka, Syria, at the time of the airstrike. Wednesday's statements from the Pentagon and CENTCOM are the strongest condemnation so far from the U.S. of NATO ally Turkey's air operations. Ankara began escalated attacks against Kurdish forces in northern Syria after the November 13th deadly bombing in Istanbul. According to U.S. officials, Turkish forces have carried out at least 100 air, drone, and artillery strikes on northern Syria over the past four days. The SDF claims that 18 civilians and three soldiers have been killed. SDF's commander, General Mazlum Abdi, has urged U.S. President Joe Biden to prevent Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan from following through on his threats to launch a ground offensive in retaliation for the bombing in Istanbul. The SDF denies involvement. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We've got a few narrative spins for this. The Daily Sabah has provided us with an establishment critical narrative. Turkey has been forced to conduct its own counterterrorism operations in northern Syria and northern Iraq because the U.S. has continuously disregarded its NATO allies' security concerns. In order to fight ISIS in the region, Washington has provided military training and support to the PKK and its Syrian affiliate, YPG, despite designating it a terrorist organization. Turkey has no choice but to escalate action to protect itself. And the pro-establishment narrative is courtesy of Washington Post. Turkey's obsession with Kurdish terrorism has dangerously escalated the situation in northern Syria, putting American forces at risk while also destabilizing the coalition's fragile control over ISIS. The SDF has no connection with the militant militia known as PKK and has been working with the U.S. and coalition forces for years. This is not what the U.S. should expect from an ally and sets a dangerous precedent for other alliances. And the Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative for us on this story. There's a 94% chance that Turkey will be a NATO member continuously until January 1st, 2025. The Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda agree on a ceasefire. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by France 24, Al Jazeera, East African, Reuters, and Africa News. On Wednesday... 
Angolan Foreign Minister Titi Antonio announced that an agreement had been reached in an immediate ceasefire in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, or the DRC. It's set to take effect on Friday and is intended to help end militia violence and soaring tensions between the DRC and Rwanda. The agreement was reached during a meeting between DRC President Felix Shishikidi and Rwandan Foreign Minister Vincent Beruda in the Angolan capital of Luanda. It follows a recent surge in fighting between Congolese troops and the M23 rebel group. Kinshasa argues that the M23 is backed by neighboring Rwanda, a claim Kigali rejects. The talks were part of a mini-summit between the East African Community, or EAC, and the International Conference on the Great Lakes Region, or ICGLR. A joint statement also called on the M23 to disarm and withdraw from captured territories in eastern DRC. Otherwise, the East African Community Regional Force, or the EACRF, would be ordered to intervene. This follows a July meeting between Rwandan President Paul Gagami and Shishikidi with both also agreeing to an immediate ceasefire and withdrawal of M23 fighters from eastern Congo. Fighting continued regardless, and the M23 declared that only direct talks with Kinshasa would lead to peace. On Tuesday, however, Kinshasa said M23 fighters must withdraw from the DRC before talks can be held. The, quote, March 23 movement, a majority Congolese Tutsi militia, had seized large swaths of the DRC's North Kivu province and was most recently moving toward the region's capital, Goma, which it had briefly captured in 2012 before being driven out. Meanwhile, the first contingent of about 900 Kenyan troops reportedly arrived in the DRC last week as part of the joint EAC force to restore and monitor security. Kenya is playing a leading role as a mediator in the EAC-led peace process. On Monday, Kenyan President William Ruto met with his Congolese counterpart in Kinshasa to discuss ways to end the fighting. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. There are two spins that have emerged, and the first one is an establishment-critical narrative being provided by New Times. While Kinshasa puts all the blame for the violence on the M23, it has deliberately undermined all serious peace efforts in eastern Congo. And while the government is now engaged in so-called peace talks, the Congolese army and its militias are busy planning a genocidal campaign against the eastern Tutsi population. Until Kinshasa ends its double game, there will be no peace. And the pro-establishment narrative is written by foreign policy. The road to peace in eastern Congo is long but it's encouraging to see that Africa itself is taking the initiative and seems increasingly capable of resolving its conflicts on its own. That Paul Kagame obviously admitted to having influence over the M23 is a remarkable success of the EAC's peace efforts. Conditions for peace in eastern Congo are better than they have been for a long time. Taking a look at day 275 of the Ukraine conflict as the European Union struggles to agree to Russian oil price cap and deadly strikes happen in Kherson. Here are the facts as agreed upon by MSN, FX Street, Politico, and Ukraine Forum. Negotiations entered their third day on Friday as EU countries remained divided over what level at which to cap the prices of Russian oil exports an initiative aimed at limiting the financial resources available to Moscow to fight the war in Ukraine. The G7 proposed a cap of $65 to $70 per barrel, close to current market rates, 
But countries such as Poland, Lithuania, and Estonia argue that rate would make oil too profitable for Russia, as production costs are roughly $20 per barrel. Others, including Germany, Austria, Denmark, and the Netherlands, believe that going any lower could make gas supplies scarce and lead to a spike in prices from elsewhere. Reports suggest that the issue has created a political crisis for the European Commission, with considerable anger being expressed by diplomats of various nations. Quote, Right now, nobody's happy, one EU diplomat told Politico. We're not progressing, and we're back to where we were at the beginning. Meanwhile, a separate report in Politico quoted a number of EU officials who claim they are increasingly displeased with the U.S. and the Biden administration and accuse them of profiting from the Ukraine war while Europe struggles. Joseph Borrell, the EU's chief diplomat, said, quote, Americans, our friends, take decisions which have an economic impact on us. On the ground, Russia launched widespread attacks in recently recaptured territories on the west bank of the Dnipro River in Kherson on Thursday. Local officials said 10 civilians were killed and a further 54 were injured. Russian attacks were also recorded in Zaporizhia, Dnipropetrovsk, and Kharkiv, where one civilian was reported injured. Meanwhile, the death toll from Wednesday's strikes on the region of Kiev has risen to seven, local authorities said. Eric, thank you for the update on the situation in Ukraine. We've got quite a few narrative spins on this story. The first one is a pro-establishment narrative, and it's provided by Associated Press. A cap on Russia's oil exports will further strain the resources available to Moscow for fighting its war in Ukraine, while alleviating price instability if Russian oil is taken off the market. It must be implemented. Thank you, Adam. An establishment critical narrative is being provided by FX Street. With countries such as China, India, and others unlikely to go along with the EU's proposals, it's highly unlikely that they will be successfully implemented or work, even if support for the measures can be consolidated. A price cap is a ridiculous idea. And Moscow Times has provided us with a pro-Russia narrative. A cap on the price of Russian oil goes against the principles of international trade and would have grave consequences for the global energy market. And the Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative, saying there's a 50% chance that the price of oil will be at least $88.30 per barrel by December of 2022. Well, I know what I'm getting my kids for Christmas. <laughs> Turning our attention to news in the state, Georgia reinstates its six-week abortion ban. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, Washington Post, and NPR Online News. On Wednesday, the Georgia Supreme Court reinstated the state's six-week abortion ban, reversing last week's ruling from a lower court that declared the restriction unconstitutional. On November 15th, a Fulton County Superior Judge ruled that the ban was unlawful as it was enacted in 2019 when the prevailing law of Roe v. Wade protected abortion access nationwide. The judge's ruling was in response to a lawsuit from advocacy group Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective that claimed that the heartbeat bill violates women's privacy rights under Georgia's constitution. The state immediately appealed the judge's ruling and requested that it be placed on hold for the duration of the appeal. This case is the latest in a string of lawsuits challenging states' abortion bans since the overturning of Roe in June, including in Indiana, North Dakota, Arizona, West Virginia, Ohio, and Texas, among others. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Two spins emerging, and we go with the Democratic narrative first, coming from Daily Kos. 
Although the decision to overturn Roe gave the power over abortion to the states, many of these trigger bans and abortion restrictions violate state constitutions and infringe on women's rights to bodily autonomy. It's absolutely necessary for judges to step in and block these bans. And of course, you can't have a Democratic narrative without a Republican narrative, and the folks over at Breitbart have provided us with one. These trigger laws and restrictions were all legally voted on and implemented by their state's respective legislatures under the caveat that they would take effect if Roe were overturned. It's now the duty of state officials to enforce them. Opponents are free to challenge them, but they're in for a tough fight that they will inevitably lose. And in political news, a U.S. writer sues Trump for defamation and battery. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, New York Post, BBC News, Dawn, and Newsbud. Donald Trump is facing a second lawsuit from U.S. writer E. Jean Carroll, who is filing charges of battery and defamation against the former president. She alleges he sexually assaulted her 27 years ago, which he denies. According to Carroll's complaint, Trump assaulted her in a dressing room of a luxury department store in Manhattan in 1995 or 96. The allegation was first made in a book published in 2019. But due to the introduction of a new law known as the, quote, Adult Survivors Act, she is now suing him for battery over the alleged incident. A new legislation was signed into law by Governor Kathy Hochul back in May and allows victims of historic cases of sexual abuse and assault a one-year window in which to sue their alleged abusers, even if the incidents would normally fall outside of the statute of limitations. Hochul's law was modeled on the Child Abuse Act, also a piece of New York legislation, which introduced a similar exceptions for victims who were abused under the age of 18. Carol, 78, has further claimed that the assault left her with lasting psychological harm and damaged her ability to maintain subsequent romantic relationships. Trump denies the claims when they were first published, saying that the incident could not have taken place as Carol was, quote, not my type. His comments led the plaintiff to file a defamation suit against him, but it has since been tied up in appeals courts. Thank you, Eric. Washington Post has provided us with a Democratic narrative spin. Carol's case is reflective of the success of Hochul's Adult Survivors Act as providing an opportunity to victims of decades-old sexual abuse to take the legal action against their abusers. The New York courts are expecting an avalanche of lawsuits brought under the act, which will be aimed at holding attackers, even if they be ex-presidents, accountable for exploitation. Adam, thank you for that. We have a Republican narrative coming from New York Post. While those working with sex abuse victims have defended the moral rationale behind the law, the Adult Survivors Act will only succeed in putting further pressure on already overstretched courts. The state's court system is currently inundated with additional cases, numbering more than 5,000 brought under the Child Victims Act. The inevitable influx of suits, this new law will prompt, risks buckling the justice system. Hochul's legislation puts ideology above practicality. And the nerds over at Metaculus have provided us with a prediction for this story. There's a 68% chance that if Donald Trump is disqualified from holding the presidency, that disqualification will be ruled unconstitutional before January 20th, 2025. And turning our attention to U.S. midterm news, Alaska's Murkowski and Peltola win re-election. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Politico, and Wall Street Journal. 
Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski and Democratic Representative Mary Peltola of Alaska both won re-election against their Trump-backed opponents on Wednesday, marking the latest in a series of defeats for the former president. Although neither candidate received an outright majority, they came out on top in the state's recently introduced ranked choice system, which allows voters to rank candidates in order of preference. Lower-ranked candidates are eliminated through a succession of counting rounds. Murkowski has represented Alaska in the Senate since 2002. A centrist, she was the first Republican senator to call for Trump's resignation following the Capitol riot, and later voted to impeach him. She defeated Republican opponent Kelly Shibaka. Peltola, meanwhile, beat Sarah Palin, former governor of Alaska and 2008 Republican vice presidential nominee, to win a full two-year term in the U.S. House. Peltola is the first Alaska native to serve in Congress and the first Alaska Democrat to win a full House term since 1970. Alaska is one of the last states to produce its results for the November 8 midterms. Democrats have so far won 50 seats in the Senate, to Republicans 49. The final seat will be determined in Georgia's December 6th runoff. In the House, Republicans have secured 220 seats to Democrats 213, with just two races remaining to be called. Those were the facts, and we have two spins, beginning with a Democratic narrative coming from CNN. These victories, along with those against other Trump-backed candidates, show that a majority of American voters on both sides of the aisle are ready to move on from the former president and his toxic, conspiracy-theory-ridden rhetoric. This is a win for democracy, freedom, and equality. And the expected Republican narrative is written by a Wall Street Journal. These results reveal very little other than that ranked-choice voting is a scam that leads to mass confusion and increased voter bitterness. Alaska is a majority Republican state which Trump won by 10 points in 2020. How did it end up with a Democratic representative? In our next story, Elon Musk making the news as he reinstates suspended Twitter accounts. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, CBS, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and CNN. On Thursday, Elon Musk announced a, quote, general amnesty for suspended Twitter accounts, which will see blocked users reinstated as early as next week. This comes as Musk polled his followers on Wednesday, asking whether accounts that haven't broken the law or engaged in egregious spam should be reinstated. Around 72% of respondents voted yes. It also came a week after Musk reinstated some previously suspended accounts, including those of former U.S. President Donald Trump, the satirical website Babylon Bee, and comedian Kathy Griffin. The new Twitter owner tweeted in October that he would form a content moderation council, quote, with widely diverse viewpoints, and that no big content decisions or account reinstatements would happen without the input of the council. Musk has previously said he disagreed with Twitter's policy of permanent bans and tweeted last week that its new policy would be to demonetize rather than ban users who post negative or hate tweets. Thank you, Eric. Our left narrative spin on this story is provided by Vox. Musk's brief few weeks as Twitter's CEO have been overwhelmingly marked by chaos. While he claims that this, quote, general amnesty will improve freedom of speech on the platform, it will really just give a wider platform to dangerous conspiracy theorists and allow for hate speech to run unchecked. And GIS Reports Online gives us a right narrative for this story. 
While Musk may be making questionable choices for his business, he's undeniably protecting free speech. A strong democracy can withstand untrue opinions and outlandish comments without falling apart. And tech companies don't need to police the speech of their users. Does this mean you've been reinstated as well, Adam? Yeah, mine's still in question. Me, me and uh, <laughs> me and uh, um, Lindell, you know, the My Pillow guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're kind of, you know, we had a little thing going together on the side, and uh, you know, I tried to get back in, but uh, I don't know. We'll see. Our next story comes from news out of Malaysia, where Anwar Ibrahim has been sworn in as its new prime minister. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Straits Times, Star, CNN, Washington Post, and Edge Markets. Datuk Siri Anwar Ibrahim, chairman of the coalition Pakatan Harapan, or the PH, was sworn in as Malaysia's 10th prime minister on Thursday, after being appointed by Sultan Abdullah Ahmad Shah to form a unity government amid a hung parliament. His nomination came hours after Malaysia's king held a special meeting with his fellow Malay rulers to discuss the formation of the new government after the three primary coalitions had failed to establish a majority in a recent election. This marks the ending of Anwar's decades-long wait for Malaysia's premiership after being deputy prime minister in the 1990s and the official prime minister in waiting in 2018. In between, he was imprisoned on corruption and sodomy charges that he claimed were politically motivated. The long-ruling conservative Barisian Nacional Coalition, which won 30 seats in last week's election, favored Anwar, saying it wouldn't support a government led by former Prime Minister Muyadin Yassin's right-wing Perikatan Nacional, or PN, bloc. Markets reacted positively to this outcome, with Malaysia's ringgit soaring as much as 1.5% its best day in two weeks, and equities rising 3%, their best session since November 2020. Meanwhile, PN's Muyadin refused to accept Anwar's appointment, claiming that he himself had been backed by 115 MPs before the deadline, with 112 votes needed to win a majority. He also urged Anwar to prove he has the majority support of MPs. Adam, thank you for the facts. And two spins emerging, beginning with Narrative A, coming from Malaysia now. As the king's decision to appoint Anwar is final and can't be challenged, it's futile to argue that he failed to reach a majority. However, it's clear that his premiership is unlikely to be smooth sailing. The Malay ethnic majority isn't backing him, and forging ties with scandal-tainted leaders, as Anwar has done, will only further tarnish his reputation. And Narrative B is provided by Malaysia Kini. Malaysia requires leaders with diplomatic skills willing to act in the best interest of its citizens regardless of race or religion. While his success remains to be seen, Anwar, who has been a loud advocate for stability, good governance, proper economic management, and a unity government, embodies these principles and is the ideal candidate to lead the country out of its political crisis. Turning our attention to Pakistan, an army chief admits its military's political interference. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Newsbud, Voice of America, Reuters, and BBC News. In his last address as army chief, General Kamar Javid Bajwa defended the role of Pakistan's military, which has faced heavy criticism, particularly from former Prime Minister Imran Khan, who has accused it of being instrumental in his removal from office in April. 
Bajwa said the military had unlawfully meddled in politics for 70 years, but wasn't doing so any longer. Speaking at the Defense and Martyrs Day ceremony in Rawalpindi on Wednesday, Bajwa questioned why other armies are rarely criticized, while the Pakistani military faces frequent condemnation. Quote, I think the reason for this is the army's interference in politics. That's why the army decided in February not to get involved in politics, he said. He also rejected claims from Khan that the U.S. had played a role in toppling his government as, quote, fake and false. During the 75 years since the independence and formation of Pakistan, the nation's army has seized power three times through military coups, leading to more than three decades of dictatorial rule. Bajwa also said that the army has started an internal process to review its actions and expressed hope that Pakistan's political parties will do the same. Quote, the reality is that in Pakistan, institutions, political parties, and civil society, they have all made mistakes, he said, continuing. It's time we learn from them and move forward. Pakistan's generals maintain a dominant role over security matters and foreign affairs, even under civilian government rule. Bajwa has sought to balance his ties with China and the U.S. and has also played an important role in securing financial assistance for Pakistan. On Thursday, Pakistan's government named General Asim Munir, a former spy chief, as Bajwa's replacement. The appointment ended months of speculation over who would land what many consider the country's most powerful job. Thank you, Eric. We've got a couple of narrative spins on this. Narrative A is presented by Voice of America. It's best to take Bajwa's claim that the army intends to cease this unconstitutional interference in politics with a large grain of salt. The military institution is so deeply entrenched in the fabric of Pakistan's politics that it would be near impossible to engineer such a sharp exit. Bajwa's successor will play a key role in reducing tensions between the government and opposition leader Imran Khan due to the decades of meddling by senior military figures in the country's political governance. And Narrative B is coming from Don. While it's true that Pakistan's army has a history of illegitimately interfering in politics, it's clear that Bajwa is using the end of his tenure as an opportunity to openly discuss the truth for the sake of the country's stability. This is a rare and candid admission by a senior leader who is concerned about the potential for ongoing turmoil and believes that his influence, including through negotiating better relationships between political parties, was motivated by a desire to maintain the functioning of democracy and political health of the nation. And the nerds of Bataculus have something to say about this. There's a 43% risk that Pakistan will default on its debt in 2022. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Our last story says that Europe is going to fund a study on beaming solar energy from space. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Newsbud, Space.com, Greek Reporter, and Nature.com. The European Space Agency, or ESA, this week agreed to find a study testing whether huge space-based solar farms could be cost-effective. The Solaris project proposes converting sunlight collected in space to microwave energy before transmitting it to the Earth's surface. Researchers will thus run trials over three years to see if electricity can feasibly be beamed wirelessly into millions of people's homes from orbit. Energy from sunlight can be far more efficiently collected in space, as solar panels are not obscured by clouds and, unlike on Earth, there is no night. ESA's Director General Josef Aschbacher 
has said that such collection could be an enormous help to tackle future energy shortages. But it is only one of several options being discussed. Separate proposals have been made by the UK. The nation is likely intent on utilizing some £6 million, or $7.27 million, in funding that has been made available to develop space-based solar power, or SBSP, to help Britain reach its net-zero targets. Recent trials have shown that the fundamentals of SBSP can be used successfully. A demonstration at Airbus's X-Works Innovation Factory in Germany transmitted electricity in the form of microwaves from a photovoltaic panel across 36 meters, or 118 feet. Estimates from the ESA and other external sources have recently reported that a working solar satellite capable of producing as much electricity as a 2-gigawatt power station could be in use by 2040, though the achievement would require significant funding and greater political support. Funding for the Solaris project was agreed at a November 22nd to 23rd conference in Paris, which saw member states commit a total budget of 16.9 billion euros, or $17.58 billion, for various projects over five years. 2.7 billion euros, or $2.81 billion, will be allocated for human and robotic space exploration, including Europe's first Mars rover mission. And 3.2 billion euros, or $3.33 billion, will be dedicated to the agency's scientific program. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Let's look at the spins. Narrative A is the first one, and it's coming from Independent. This is not only a technological triumph, considering the climate and energy crisis currently faced by the world. SBSP could also be a key part of the solution to the greatest global problem of this generation. The Solaris proposal could well make Europe a leader in the pursuit of scalable clean energy solutions. And Narrative B is provided by ASPI Strategist. This is not only about technology or renewable energy. Growing interest in SBSP is down to international competition when it comes to climate-related goals. China has become increasingly interested in SBSP. An international pursuit of the technology reflects an increasing militarization of space and, more broadly, military dominance. And we have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast. It says that there is a 35% chance that China will become the first country to administer more territory off Earth than on it, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, November 26, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.